This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. We uh, continue our sermon series in 1 Samuel, and today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter five, uh, 25. Uh, periodically, it is easy to look over uh, the stories of women in the Bible. Now, we've already seen a few stories of women, even in 1 Samuel. If you remember, uh, we saw Hannah way back at the beginning, and uh, Michael later, or Michael. Um, and now we're going to see another story of a woman named Abigail. And the thing about these stories of the women, Hannah and Michael and even Abigail here, um, and especially maybe Abigail here, is that their um, life in the world is surprisingly Christ-like. Now, that's not surprising uh, because they're women. Um, women are made in the image of God. That's not, that's not why it's surprising. It's surprising in contrast to the other characters in the story, the people who should have been more Christ-like. So today in our story, we're actually going to see Abigail be Christ-like in a place where David could have been better. Abigail is the picture of Jesus in this story. And what's amazing about all of this is that uh, Abigail lived way before uh, Jesus ever did, about a thousand years before. And so when you think about that, Abigail's story was told time and time and time again to, to Israelite children and adults, and they studied her story. And unknown to them, Abigail was preparing them to expect Jesus. A thousand years of expectation to say, this is what Jesus will be like. We're going to see that same thing uh, from Abigail's story for us today, just retroactively through the lens of Jesus. We're going to see here a little bit more uh, clearer. But before we can look at Abigail in that light, we actually have to understand our position before God. There's a lot of analogies used of humans uh, before God. We're called children. Uh, God describes uh, himself as like a, a chicken who would brood his chicks underneath uh, his wings, and, and that's being us, mankind. Um, we're also des- described as friends of God. But in the same vein, if you read through Scripture, you also find that we're described as enemies of God, children of wrath. And if I can add one more, we're kind of brats. There's no brats. Like, we're, we've all been children, or you are children now, and you've been a little bratty. I can remember one scenario with my parents uh, where I don't remember exactly what was going on, but I was mouthing off to my mom as a teen or a preteen, and my dad turned to me and he said, uh, don't ever forget that if it comes between you or her, I choose her every time. Now, there might be a lot to unpack uh, in that statement, but suffice it to say that whatever was going on, I was being a brat. I knew that my parents loved me, but I was being disrespectful, disdaining uh, the sacrifices that they had made on my behalf and, um, and belittling them. Today, our sermon is going to look at an adult brat. That's actually going to be Abigail's husband, Nabal. An adult brat, and in some sense, we understand that when you're bratty uh, as, a, as a teen or preteen, it's not an excuse, children, hear me out, but it's understandable. We understand you're maturing uh, in your life. When you're bratty as an adult, it's a, it's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign that you haven't quite learned how to exist in the world. This is Nabal. Um, and there were too many verses uh, for us to print in the bulletin, and actually chapter 25 is just very long. We're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, I would encourage you to do so on your own time, but I wanted to read for you uh, what verses 2 and 3 of chapter 25 say, which are not in your bulletin, about these people. There was a man in my own whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep 
and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. That's how the Bible describes Abigail and Nabal. And I think it's very clear to us who the brat of the story is, Nabal and his wife, Abigail, who is discerning and beautiful. From Nabal, we're going to see just how bad our situation is, just how bratty we can be. But from Abigail, we're going to learn just how good Jesus is to us despite it. So with that, I invite you to stand as I read the word of the Lord coming from 1 Samuel chapter 25. Um, As one more note, what's printed in your bulletin um, is 18 through 35, I believe. Uh, And I'm actually going to be starting in 14. Uh, So the first few verses are not going to be there. So if you're following along, just when I get to 18, uh, I'll be there. Starting in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey, she came down under the cover of the mountain, and behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives... And as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespasses of your servant, for the Lord will continually make my Lord, will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live." If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt dealt well with my Lord, And remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had been 
there, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Since the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So this is a long story, mostly made up of a speech from Abigail. Um, a very long speech, um, in fact, as you followed it through. And there's uh, some wordplay in there between lowercase Lord and capitalized Lord, kind of referring to um, the God of promise versus David as the Lord. Um, and I'd encourage you to go back through and kind of read through the, that carefully. Uh, we'll reference some of that today. But our passage is really going to be focused on the demeanor of Abigail. Abigail that would go to mediate on behalf of her husband. But in order to understand this, like I said, we have to understand how wicked Nabal actually is. Nabal is unbelievably wealthy. It says this right from the, the, the get-go. Actually, his wealth precedes him. In the biblical story, they describe his wealth before they give you his name. But they give you Abigail's name before they describe her. Now, it seems that David and his roaming bands of warriors had afforded Nabal's shepherds and servants some form of protection while they were pasturing their sheep. So they were pasturing their sheep out into the wilderness, uh, and Nabal, as a good businessman, would have to account for some losses, whether from uh, storms or from wolves um, or from other uh, instances of things that could happen where help was too far away to get there. And so he would lose maybe servants, um, but definitely uh, sheep and goats. He had to factor that in. But it seems that with David and his men around, there was afforded protection from thieves, maybe from wolves, uh, that if they needed help and they cried out, that someone may have responded to help them. And it seems that it was understood in their culture that for this sort of protection, um, there, there was a cost to this. And it also appears that it was a just cost. It wasn't David <clears throat> uh, racketeering or using his muscle to kind of beat up on locals. Um, it was David uh, providing a service and then expecting payment in return. And Nabal, when David sends messengers to go collect this fee... Nabal responds this way. This is in verses 10 and 11, which again is not in your bulletin of chapter 25. He says, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Nabal is disrespecting David. He's being a little brat. He knows exactly who David is. He knows exactly David's predicament with Saul, which is why he can reference that servants abandoning their masters. If you've been with us for a while, um, David is the king anointed, but Saul is the king reigning. So Saul's kind of uh, on his way out. He, he's just fighting it tooth and nail. Uh, and David is kind of banished to the wilderness in some sense. That's why he's out in the wilderness. But he's going to be king. He's going to be the defender of his people. Nabal uh, is disrespecting him at every turn. Even though he has reaped the benefits of David and his men's protection uh, and their care, he can say David is a nobody. Actually, David is worse than a nobody. He's a fugitive. I don't have to thank him or respect him. What I have is mine. This disrespect kindled David's anger, and he gathers 400 of his 600 soldiers, and he marches against Nabal, intent on killing all of the men, all of the males in Nabal's family and service. Now, it appears that David's reaction to this sort of disrespect is a little bit of an overreaction, but it's also very understandable. First, why is it an overreaction? Well, to kill all the males based on one man's foolishness reminds us more of Saul. 
And if you were with us last week, you remember that King Saul, wicked king, right, is being replaced by David, um, had killed all of the priests and their families and everything living in Nob over the perceived disrespect of Ahimelech. For David to do this sounds much more like Saul than it does a man after God's own heart. But it is also understandable. It's understandable because um, Nabal had already experienced the blessing of David's protection. He had already merited and reaped the rewards. And so for him to disrespect that, uh, we we intuitively understand as as wrong. Um, More than that, David was the king anointed. He was going to be king over Nabal. And Nabal is just rejecting God's sovereignty over this. He's just like, you're not going to be king. Saul's going to be king. I'm going to play my cards here and take a gamble. I don't have to respect you or give you anything because Saul's going to win this fight. But lastly, we, we, we gather that this is understandable based on the reaction of the servants, who the servants in fear, as we picked up our story, run to Abigail, and they plead with her to do something because they fear for her lives. I think that's my daughter up here, just in case you're wondering. It's okay. I'm sure it's much more distracting to me, actually. Like my teenage self who failed to see all the sacrifices that my parents had made for me, um, and I chose to be a brat to them, so Nabal um, rejected all the blessing that he received from David, spurned God's plan for David, uh, and said, I'm going to do what I want anyway. He is a harsh and wicked man. I think we often have similar responses to God, though. We say, who is God? There are many gods in the world today. Why should I take my stuff and serve this God? So these servants, they flee to Abigail, his wife who was discerning and beautiful. What did the servants want from Abigail? They wanted her to intercede. They wanted her to do something because this worthless fellow was going to get them all Killed, And this is where our verses picked up that were printed in your bulletin. Abigail wastes no time in gathering the supplies and sending them ahead as a gift for David. Then she goes herself and falls flat on her face before David and identifies with her husband. But before we get into any of the words that she said, and she said a lot of words, but before any of this, can we just stop and marvel at how amazing it is that she would do this for the likes of Nabal? Nabal, by all accounts, doesn't deserve to be mediated for. There's actually a very real sense where for Abigail, the death of her husband might actually be relief. Marriage to a harsh and wicked means that you'll have a harsh and wicked life. But this woman, married to Nabal, seeks to go ahead and mediate on behalf of her husband. Why? For the sake of her community. She didn't deny that she had ownership over all of the men in her household, that she was responsible for them, that she had a role to play in protecting them. And that although she had a worthless, um, harsh, and wicked husband, she had a duty that exceeded her own life and her own desires. She's the very definition of a Proverbs 31 woman. Now, I don't know what you've heard uh, about womanhood from the Bible. I think we've heard lots of different things. And we often throw out around Proverbs 31 as like, oh, that's the verse that describes um, what women's, uh, women should be like. Um, but I don't think we've read Proverbs 31 in a while. And so I'm just going to summarize some of the things that it says. 
It says that a woman will rise early to provide food for her household. It says that she considers a field, a property, and buys it. That she has uh, the means and capacity to allocate assets of, of, uh, of her family towards uh, particular ends. That says that she runs a business, that she is charitable with her money, and it goes on. But Proverbs 31 also says that her husband trusts her, that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. But Nabal is nothing like this. Abigail may be a Proverbs 31 woman, but her husband is nothing like he should be. She isn't supported by a husband who sees her wisdom and discernment and encourages it. She's a husband who is wicked, mean, and foolish. The fact that she would identify with Nabal at all is unexpected, undeserved, and frankly, unimaginable. Her discernment, beauty, and innocence, pleading her husband's case before David, should make all of us scream, she shouldn't be there, not for the likes of him. He doesn't deserve it at all. Like Nabal, all of humanity in their sin has said, who is this God that I should listen to him? Why should I give him my stuff? I worked hard for it. It's mine. We're brats. We're disrespectful. We enjoy the protection and care of God while at the same time saying, you have never helped me. You are a nobody, and I am not going to honor you. You must remember that all sin, all disregard of God's law, all violations of peace and shalom, all of our pride and our arrogance are an affront to the very nature of God himself. Now, sometimes we might say, well, in all of my sin and disobedience, I only ever harmed myself. I never harmed anybody else. Um, And even if that were true, uh, and it's not, just to be clear, but even if that were true, harming ourselves is still harming a vessel that bears God's own image. We were destined for such greatness, and we settled for mud pies. We were destined for such beauty, and we settled for thorns and thistles. All sin destroys, perverts, pollutes, and ultimately kills. God must remove it, all of it. But the problem is is that sin doesn't come from nature. Nature is cursed by our sin, but you know where sin comes from? It comes from you and me. We are the problem. If you ever want to know what's wrong with the world, look no further than us in this room. We're what's wrong with the world, according to the Bible. The fact that Jesus, like Abigail, would choose to identify with, represent, and mediate for us should be shocking, unexpected, undeserved, and frankly, unimaginable, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would come down to be born in human flesh, would be something that caused even the angels to marvel and scream, he shouldn't be there, not for the likes of them who are so harsh and badly behaved. They spit in his face. They nailed him to a cross. Jesus entered the story to identify with us, and we did not deserve it. It should make all of us scream that he shouldn't be there, not for the likes of us. So first we learn from Abigail um, about Jesus' intercession on our behalf, that the first thing that should cause us pause is that he chooses to identify with us at all. But we're going to learn something else, and that's about the restitution that Jesus pays on our behalf. You see, Abigail chooses not only to identify with the wicked one in her life, but she attempts to make restitution on his behalf. In verse 24, she says, 
On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. But not only does she offer to take Nabal's punishment, she's already given what Nabal should have given in the first place. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep, grain, raisins, and figs. Now imagine being David. You've pronounced your judgment, you've armed your men, and you're marching towards Nabal, intent on killing every man that's there. And then all of a sudden these gifts start showing up, 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep, of grain, or five sheep grain, raisins, and figs. They start showing up on dockings ahead of, uh, ahead of Abigail, remember, she sends them ahead of her. And you might be thinking to yourself, too little, too late, Nabal. The disrespect is already done. The army's on the move, we're coming for you. The gifts should have been given at another time. But then... As you continue marching forward, a woman comes on a donkey, falls off of it onto her face before you and says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. David has to think too, she shouldn't be here, not for the likes of Nabal. But David sees this outpouring of love and generosity from an innocent party and says, I accept David relents from his anger, accepts the gifts from Abigail, and turns away from his plans to harm wicked Nabal. Now, up to this moment, um, Abigail and Jesus have kind of, the the analogy between them has been pretty close. Uh, But we're going to start separating here. Uh, And here's why. Um, Jesus, indeed, does offer restitution on our behalf and offers to take the punishment. But where Jesus uh, offers very real substitution Uh, very real restitution, Abigail only offers a symbol. Here's what I mean. In this instance, David had said he was going to do something, right? There was a punishment for a particular action. And she says, on me, let this action fall. But David can't bring himself to do it. He can't harm an innocent party. And so consequently, in the forgiveness scheme, there was a wrong done. Somebody's got to pay for it. What David does is actually accept it in and of himself. Now, David can do this because he's not God. (laughs) Um, What David actually does, if you were to read the rest of our story, which continues on, David accepts this forgiveness and basically says, I leave the judgment of wicked Nabal to God. And God strikes Nabal with a stroke or heart attack, some sort of medical issue. uh, And within 10 days, he dies. God takes vengeance on the wicked. But we hear the story, and I think some of us think, why couldn't God do this with Jesus? Why did Jesus actually have to die? Jesus comes up, and like Abigail says, put the blame on me, and God follows through with it. Why can't he just forgive and walk away? Well, first, we have to remember earlier what we said about sin. We were destined for such greatness, but we settled for so much less. All sin destroys, perverts, pollutes, and ultimately kills. God must remove it. See, here's the thing about David. David can yield Nabal's fate, Nabal's wickedness. You got to think, King David is about to, to rule over a land, right? And he can say, I don't want this wickedness, this harsh wickedness to continue in my land. And he ought to execute justice against it. But recognizing that although he might be sovereign in his land, he serves a higher sovereign. He can say, I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. I'm actually going to let God execute judgment against him. But there's no higher authority than God. The buck stops with him. 
to make things right, to make things just, to punish evil doers, to punish those that have perverted, polluted, and destroyed his creation. There's no one else who's going to take responsibility for it but him. He cannot just accept a symbolic gesture because symbolic doesn't actually make things right. It doesn't correct the damage that's been done. David forgives because he can leave the matter of Nabal's wickedness in God's hand because God can be trusted to make things right. For God, though, he can't just forgive it. He has to actually correct it. And Jesus intercedes for us not just with symbols of restitution with bread and wine. He intercedes with us with very real body and blood. Death for death, life for life. Jesus arrives unexpectedly on behalf of wicked people and says, on me alone, Lord, be the guilt. And Jesus is the only one who can actually heal every wound, remove the pollution. He can bring purity from the perverse. And we see this from Jesus time and time again throughout your New Testament. He is the God who can make things right, that can wipe away every tear, that can bring the dead back to life. And he does so with his very body and his very blood. Abigail's unexpected restitution was to an earthly fallen David, but Jesus' unexpected restitution was an unblemished sacrifice sufficient to take away the sins of the world. So we've learned from Abigail that as a mediator, Jesus has identified with us and made restitution on our behalf. But there's still one more thing that we can learn from Abigail. This is more um, of how she is treated after. Because you might imagine that David, having received these gifts, um, might be a little bit like begrudging about it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, like I think back to my, my uh, brothers and sister. Like when they did something wrong against me, right, I would start planning out uh, my vengeance. Um, and I had this, you know, plan for sweet, sweet vengeance that I was going to get upon them. And then occasionally, you know, they would kind of come to their senses and maybe like apologize first. And they would take the wind out of my retributive sails, and I'd be a little like disdain, like, oh man, I have to do the right thing because I'm bound as the older sibling uh, to, to take the moral high road when really I just want to pummel them, right? And so maybe David sees the situation, and he's like, man, I was really hoping on like satisfying something here. I'll take the gifts, but he could have just walked away and held anger against Nabal, Nabal and his household forever because that's what we like to do. We like to hold those grudges kind of keep the distance, be like, all right, I accept your apology, but like, it's, it's fine. David doesn't do this, though. David goes further. He sees everything that Abigail is doing, and he vindicates Abigail. I'm going to summarize what David responds to Abigail in verses 32 to 35. He says, God is so good. Your beauty and your character glorify God, and your humility here has stopped me in the tracks of what I should not have done. I not only hear your request, but I grant your petition, and you have gained my respect and the respect of all of those in my company. Abigail's mediatorial action didn't simply just intercede for her husband and and stay um, kind of the wrath of King David but it actually built a friendship between the household of Nabal and the household 
of David. David could be stopped in his tracks and say, I don't know how to solve the problem of Nabal, but God does. He can execute the vengeance because I see this household and these are my people. Abigail's humility, character, and unexpected work are seen as vindicated. No anger is left. No grudge is going to be held from David, but they would have his respect. And in Philippians 2, Paul says that God the Father gives a very similar commendation to Jesus, who though he was great, emptied himself to become born in the likeness of men, but more than that, he humbled himself to death, even dying on the cross. And therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and vindicated him bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Make no mistake, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that he was vindicated. His unrighteous death proved to be a perfect sacrifice, his perfect life sufficient restitution, so that God in the Holy Trinity no longer looks at us as despicable Nabal, but as people that have been redeemed and bought with a price. The whole point of Philippians is to say that because Christ was vindicated and because Christ made restitution on our behalf and because Christ identified with us, we can also share in his vindication. He did it for us. You see, almost what needed to happen in this story, and it's not what happens at all if you continue reading, is that Abigail should have gone back. Nabal should have heard the story of what happened, and he should have fallen flat on his face before his wife and said, forgive me. You have redeemed our home, our name, and our people. And what Jesus does when he goes to make intercession for us before God the Father, and when he comes back and he's declared vindicated, all of us should turn fall flat on our face and say, forgive me. Thank you for saving our family, our human race, the whole world. I was blind, but now I see. It's not what Nabal does at all. Jesus' vindication, and therefore our vindication, is not just symbolic but it really, truly changes our status from those of enemies of God to children of the living God. And this has profound implications because just as Abigail's family kind of transitioned from being associated with Nabal in some sense to be associated to Abigail and her faithfulness um, and therefore to David, um, you can, um, Abigail makes one more request of David in verse 31. She, she asked that Nabal be forgiven uh, earlier, but then in verse 31 asked this, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And the language is a little weird, but basically she's saying, when God makes you king, remember me. Or better yet, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Why does she want to be remembered? And Abigail fully believes she's about to go back to her wicked and harsh husband, who's probably going to be even more wicked and harsh with her, learning that she went behind his back. When the king, the person who's supposed to execute justice in the land, comes into his kingdom, she says, remember me. Remember me. 
Jesus identified with us. He made restitution on our behalf, and he was vindicated, and so we can share in his vindication. And our legal status may have changed from enemies of God to children of the living God, but his kingdom isn't here yet in its fullness. We still live in a harsh and badly behaved and wicked world, full of injustices and wrongs and tears. Will we be remembered? In our New Testament reading, we read from Luke about the criminals that were crucified next to Jesus. Now, one railed at him, maybe an image of Nabal, right? But the other criminal rebuked the first one. This criminal said that Jesus was innocent, representing the wicked. And in a moment of petition, right before his death, the criminal asks to be remembered. Jesus, he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Abigail was not forgotten by David. And in fact, in just a few verses later, after her husband dies, David marries her. And her legal status, status officially changes in fullness from widow of a deceased wicked man to wife of the Lord's anointed. Now, I'm getting close to concluding, and you're not usually supposed to do this in your conclusions, so forgive me. But I need to make a little caveat here. Maybe if you've been with us for a while, you've got some concerns um, over the number of wives that David is taking. And rest assured, that pays dividends in the future for David. The Bible describes uh, the leaders in scriptures, even great examples with all of their fallenness and brokenness, um, but does not condone it as right or say that it should be repeated or that he was, uh, what he was doing was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. But at this moment for Abigail, at this moment for Abigail, there is a beautiful, unexpected, undeserved, and frankly unimaginable reversal of her fortunes. Much like the criminal on the cross, she, she went from someone that was part of a household that was about to be wiped out, utterly destroyed by David, to married into the king's family. She went from a husband who couldn't care less. Is that right? I always screw that up somehow. But who, who, who did not love her as he ought and became a Proverbs 31 woman in the king's household. This criminal who was being judged for his crimes and breathing his last at the last moment next to Jesus could see his status change from enemy of God to friend of the living God, being with Jesus that day in paradise. He could face death and recognize that Jesus has the authority to say, I will not forget you. Christians, do you know that you are not forgotten? That God has not abandoned you, but he sees you in all of your wickedness and brattiness, and he chooses to identify with you anyway? Do you know that he atones for you with a restitution that is not just symbolic, but paid for with real body and real blood that actually unifies you to God? Do you know that when his vindication comes in his fullness, that he will not fail to forget you? How could he? Everything he did was out of love for you. All the love that caused him to identify with you in the first place, all the love that caused him to sacrifice his body and his blood for you is the same love that drives him even now to continually intercede on your behalf, to mediate for you. Of course, he can't forget you. His love for you is too great. Now, one of the symbols that Jesus gives us to remind us that he could never forget us 
is actually this meal, where this bread and this wine are signs pointing to Jesus' very real identification with us and very real restitution on our behalf, where he gave up his very real body and blood and offered his perfect sacrifice for us. But also in this meal, we proclaim that it is the risen Lord who invites us to his table. The risen, vindicated Lord who says, take this bread and take this wine and remember my love for you. The night that Jesus was betrayed, that he was about to leave his disciples, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. We believe that this is a meal with our risen Lord, that he invites us to this table. It is a reminder to those of us who know the grand reversal of our fortunes, this unexpected mediator that delivered us um, from a judgment that we could not have survived, that transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light who believe that God himself came down in flesh, bled and died for us and was risen victorious, vindicated by God. And we need reminding of these promises that he will not forget us. If you're not sure of these things, if you think that any part of what I just said could be, um, you know, uh, changed or qualified in some way, um, I'd ask you not to participate in this section of our service. Um, This is, is not because we want to keep you away from something that would benefit you. Uh, it's actually because we want to protect this thing, as Jesus commands us to. Um, in the New Testament, we read that people that um, ate and drank of this meal um, without uh, proper knowledge of God and who he was ate and drank damnation upon themselves. But there's nothing found here um, that cannot be found through the Spirit of, of God alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. What this is, is um, a symbol, a sign that points back to something that happened 2,000 years ago. But it's a sign that actually nourishes our faith, that reminds us that these things are true, really intangibly, as tangibly as we can feel the crumbs on our hands and the burning of so-so wine on our throat. Jesus Christ died for us with his body and his blood. In a moment, I'll pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and we have these two serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, I believe gluten-free is going to be on this side. If you have need of that, please um, head that way. Uh, notify your server when you get there. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, allow these earthly elements to work a spiritual purpose, to unite us further to our Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator who loved us so much he could say on me alone be the guilt may we be so united to him by faith that we would taste the sweet vindication in his body and blood that we may taste how much he loves us we ask this in jesus name amen